Let's go back to Galatians, um, Galatians chapter 6. This will be part two of our message on spiritual farming. And uh, the last one was spiritual farming, do not be deceived. Today's message, spiritual farming, what's your field looking like? And so Galatians chapter 6, and we'll read this paragraph again, verse 6 through verse 10. One who is taught the Word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of well-doing or doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Father, so we pray You would bless Your Word to us now and meet with us by the power of Your Spirit. Lord, we are thankful that we have a King of righteousness and a King of peace, Lord, who's not just a man, but the God-Man. And Lord, You've given such to us righteousness and peace. Lord, I pray Your Son would be exalted in this hour. You would work in our hearts. Lord, give liberty to proclaim the truth in this passage and ears to hear it and receive it. And Your people be helped and sinners be brought to Your Son, Lord. May it please You to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we zeroed in on, on the last half of verse 7 here. Um, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And verse 8 here begins with the word for. We've seen this many times in Galatians. This word for that Paul uses uh, beginning a verse, which is explanatory, begins an explanatory uh, clause about, in this case, it's, it's what and why. Paul says what he says in verse 7. He's about to explain it with this word for. For. This is why. This is why you shouldn't be deceived. This is why God won't be mocked. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And Paul is bringing final closure to the argument that he started way back in chapter 5, verse 13 where he begins what has become a dominant theme that we've seen, that we've looked at, of life in the Spirit set over against life in the flesh. That's been Paul's theme. And as we've seen in the many messages we've preached since Galatians 5.13, Paul is not presenting two different ways in which Christians live their lives. That's not it. That's not what he's presenting here. What he's presenting is two types of different people. Two types of people. People of the Spirit and people of the flesh. Now, can Christians give place to their flesh? Well, absolutely. That's true. We all know that. But that's not what we have here. That's not what Paul underscores in these passages. Paul is underscoring for us. He's addressing a a very dead, dead religious person Versus a very much alive, a living person, a person who has the Holy Spirit within them. There's real life. There's real the real life of God in this religious person, whereas you have one who's just full of dead religious works. And nobody was nobody was better to, equipped to address this and bring this up than than Paul, the Apostle Paul, who had, who was who lived a life of of, of religious hypocrisy. Life of religiosity that was just dead before God. And, but by, his, by God's grace, he met him on that road and turned him into a passionate pursuer of Jesus Christ. So Paul knows all about dead, lifeless religiosity, and he knows all about what God does when he comes into a soul and transforms them. And in verse 7 and 8 here, these verses serve as a culmination of Paul's teaching of what life in the Spirit set against life in the flesh. 
This is a picture of it right here. He gives us this picture. Paul chooses to summarize all life in all living using a farming illustration. And he would have us all know at the end of the day, life only reaps two things. Not seven, not four, not three, not your opinion, my opinion. Two things, that's it. Only two. And all the things that we give our time to as human beings and our energy to and our thoughts and our words and our deeds, all of them boil down to two things. That which produces corruption and that which produces eternal life. Nothing else. And those two results come by way of two types of sowing. A sowing to the flesh and a sowing to the Spirit. And the great difference between sowing to the, to the Spirit and sowing to the flesh is really found right there in verse 3 and verse 5, or 7 rather. Deceit. Deceit born in conceit. As Paul expresses such in verse, verse 6 of chapter 5. We talked about this some last week. Man being so proud of himself, so thinking himself to be better, far better than others in light of others, comparing himself amongst others, thinking himself to be something, thinking himself to be something when in all actuality he's absolutely nothing. And this is the greatest deception. Because you tell man that, like I said last, last week, you tell him that and he still doesn't get it. He's still deceived. He's still convinced he's better than other people. He still think, thinks he's, he knows better. He doesn't detect it. His, his deception blinds him from a right perception. And so Paul issues his warning in verse 7. Do not be deceived. As I mentioned last time, brother, this letter is full of warning. We've seen that. Warnings to religious people. Warnings to God's people. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 6.9, right? What does he say there? The unrighteous, essentially, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't. And Paul, James opens up his letter and he talks about sin and he talks about temptation and he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived. And as I was looking through the New Testament, at least I, I saw 39 passages in the New Testament that are talking about decept- addressing deception. What is Paul asserting here in, in verse 7 and 8? That God will not be mocked. Be certain of this. Your field, Paul says, is a life. Or your life is a field, rather. The life God's given you, He, he likens it to a field. Gifted to you by the living God, and what you produce in the field of your life is going to be the means of him judging your never dying soul. That's, that's what Paul, that's what we have here. And as I pointed out last week, in some people's ears, they hear that and they think I'm preaching a works righteousness. And I said I would explain that this week. And if, if you were here t- Wednesday night, Tim did a great job of explaining that. But but let me just just begin by firmly, uh, or just affirming briefly, that this doctrine of the justification by faith, which most of you firmly do believe, and we do so because this is what Scripture teaches, as Paul so clearly states it in Romans five one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared legally righteous in the sight of God. Guilt-free, sinless, perfect. To stand perfect before God. And you see the problem. that The great dilemma of the human race is, is how can a holy and a righteous God be just and the justifier of sinful, wicked men? Because when God saves a sinner, He brings him into union with Himself. So how can a holy, righteous God dwell with sinful humanity? How's that possible? And the Bible answers that problem for us in the person of Jesus Christ. He became sin. Who Jesus, who knew no sin, never sinned one time, perfect, spotless Son of God. He became sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 
That is, Jesus took our place and bore our guilt and our shame on that cross. He became our sin-bearer, our sin-bearing substitute, fully satisfying God's justice on behalf of our sin, what our sin deserved. So that by faith, and faith alone, in His atoning work, this wonderful thing called imputation takes place in the courtroom of God. My sin is laid on Jesus Canceling the record of debt that stood against me with all its legal demands. There it is, nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. And at the same time, I am, I am legally declared righteous in the sight of God, covered in this, in the perfect robe of Jesus' righteousness. Not my own. That's justification in a nutshell. It, it, we are justified We are justified before God through the atoning work and the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And there's salvation in no other name and there's salvation in no other way. By grace are you saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works. Not in the slightest your work or my work. Not in the slightest. So that that what? What, what will man do? What, what, will the, what will the deception of man lead him to? Boasting, yes. So that man won't boast. Because man's ever ready to boast. That's what he does. He'll boast in his performance. He'll boast in his faith. He'll boast in what he does. It's the, the pride is the conceit of man. That's, man's, that's the way of man. You see, salvation is all about a confidence in Christ alone versus a confidence in self ultimately. And the Bible clearly teaches we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. Only. That is, that is a bedrock, fundamental, core doctrine that lies at the very heart of the Gospel. And we fully embrace it because that's what the Scripture teaches and I trust most of you believe it and understand that. However, let me say, however, such faith will never, ever be alone. It won't. It'll always demonstrate itself by a life that is lived out in obedience to Jesus Christ. And if it doesn't, it's not the kind of faith that saves. It's that really that simple. And there are so many texts we could turn to to establish this. Faith apart from works is what? Useless. Dead. Yes, James tells us. For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. John says, little children, here's one of these deceived texts, little children, do not be deceived. Whoever whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He, Jesus, is righteous. I could keep going, but really we don't need to turn any further than this text before us. In one sense, I am preaching works righteousness. I'm preaching the work of Christ's righteousness on that tree, and I'm preaching that that work is worked out in the life of the one who exercises their faith in Jesus Christ and trusts Him. The Bible teaches us that God has ordained good works for His people. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That God foreordained that we should walk in them. God saving people that they would walk in good works. That they would be a demonstration of His grace in their lives. And you know how that, you know how that good work, that demonstration shows itself? We, we've, we've gone through it in this series. Walking by the Spirit. By, by faith working through love. Loving your neighbor as yourself. We, we just recently sharing burdens and all good things. Jesus said it. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You won't. Don't. Don't. That's another. He didn't say it, but do not be deceived is essentially what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Don't be deceived. And we're not talking. Jesus is not talking about imputed righteousness there in that sermon. He's talking about an actual righteousness that gets demonstrated in how we live our lives and how we conduct ourselves. A righteousness that gets imparted into us when we are born again. A righteousness that's not perfect by any stretch, 
but is constantly working toward perfection. This is what the Hebrew writer says. Strive. Strive. Are you striving? Strive for holiness. Without it, you won't see the Lord. Doesn't matter what you say. If you're not striving for holiness, you will not see the Lord. Why? Because once we're saved, we're made holy, brother. We are made holy. We are sanctified by God in our salvation with Christ. Not in the fullest sense, but we are so because that which is holy has taken residence within us, the Holy Spirit. I mean, just think about the, just think about the contradiction that suggests I can be a Christian and that live out my life swimming in unrighteousness. When being born again implies that you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. I mean, you see how much nonsense that suggests, right? When God saves someone, the Holy Spirit takes residence in them and begins this, yes, they're, they're sanctified in one sense, but there begins this this progressive sanctification. And yes, it's a gradual one. And it's a gradual one of making us more and more in the image of Jesus. We're more, our lives, is, as we start as a Christian, if you've, been in the, if you've been with the Lord for 25 years, 10 years, your life should look more like Christ than it did when you first believed. It really should. That's everything in Scripture indicates that. If it doesn't, something's wrong. Something's dreadfully wrong. And yes, don't, don't misunderstand me. There may be seasons of dearth. There may be seasons of darkness and, and being caught by sin. We, we, we talked about that in chapter 6, verse 1. But that imparted righteousness will manifest itself. It will make you an overcomer. It will cause grace to be, to be a functional sin slayer in your life. It will. Yes, you will fall. You will fail fall, get back, but you will get up. You will. That's what the Christian does. And you will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ if you're His. You will. That's God's commitment to to your sanctification. I mean, there is a real fruit bearing of righteousness in the life of a Christian. Uh, Scripture speaks of the Father's glorified, of the Father being glorified and the Christian bearing much fruit. And so proving, John says, so proving to be His disciple. That's how we prove it. No, no, no righteous fruit, no disciple. How do we know it's a disciple? Fruit of righteousness. That's how we know. That's the way the Bible speaks. Real faith works. Real faith loves. Real faith exudes real life from within. See, so, so Paul's not concerned about our eternal security here in this passage. He, he's concerned about seeing proof of such here and now. And he was concerned he wasn't. Because what's sown in the here and now is what's going to be reaping in the afterlife. It's going to have everlasting results. And you might not like how that sounds, but that's, that's what Scripture says. That's what Scripture speaks to us. Let me, let me make this clear again. I'm not talking about doing good here in order to be accepted by God. We're talking about a Holy Spirit-wrought faith that longs to do good because it has been accepted of God in Christ, through Christ. And that good will happen because that's what God ordains to those He makes His own. There's a, there's a huge difference between those two things. An eternal difference. That's what Paul's pointing out here. It's not just, this isn't just some kind of mind over matter. And I'm concerned that some of you think this way. Having this mentality, well, I'm just going to quote, trust Christ despite my constant proclivity toward evil. I'm just going to believe Jesus loves me despite the fact I'm completely enslaved to sin. Despite my field just being utterly cluttered with, with, and full of corruption. That, that's to be deceived. That, that's what Paul's warning. Don't be deceived. Don't think you're going to reap eternal life when your whole field is full of corruption. Brethren, what we don't want to do is come to a passage like this and take the edge off it. 
take the edge off what it's communicating to us because after all, you know, I've got, I got justification in my back pocket. And so I read it. Yeah, I see what it says, but it doesn't really mean what it says because I'm a Christian after all and it, it, I'm going to make it to the end. I got eternal security. Now, yes, justification should inform us of, of how we interpret the text, but we have to be very, very careful how we wield our justification sword. Okay, that's my brief groundwork for verse 8. Four, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What Paul states here does not in any way, shape, or form contradict anything I just said about justification. Both of these truths exist, brethren. Both of them are equally true. We are saved by faith alone, but that faith proves its genuineness of being of divine origin by the type of sowing that it does. Sowing. Sowing is laboring, right? I mean, you know what sowing is? You got to get out in the field and he's putting seeds in the ground. And obviously, it speaks to the work of our lives. How we live our lives, our conduct, our way of life, the things we do, the, the way we spend our time, we, we, the, what we invest ourselves in, what we give ourselves to. Reaping is the fruit that your labor produces. What results from your conduct and, and way of life? You sow to the flesh, Paul says, this is what you're going to reap, corruption. Which is a word that means destruction. Perishing. Paul is talking about an eternal state of being. He's talking about damnation. And, and this is being set against sowing in the Spirit, which reaps eternal life that the Spirit of God yields. I mean, this, this little illustration of Paul's, it's an illustration of Revelation 14, 13. Their deeds follow them. Their works. The works of man follow them right to the judgment seat of God. Everybody's. Now, Paul is not teaching a sort of Christian karma here. What goes around comes around. If I do good to others, then good's going to happen to me. But if I do bad to others, bad's going to happen to me. Now, I, I mean, certainly there is a cause and effect in, in, the, in our actions and our conduct. There's, that's true. There's no doubt about that. However, we don't want to think of this in terms of karma because karma is completely built upon human works and a future destiny that is completely dependent upon those works. Paul is, Paul is thinking in eschatological terms here, and I know that's you know a big word, but essentially that means everything related to the end times. Death, resurrection, judgment, and what's going to happen? The destiny of your never-dying soul. That, that great day when everything that's, everything that's crooked, I mean, just look at it. Look at this world. You get in the news, it's like you're shocked all the time at just how crooked the world is. That day when everything that's crooked will be made straight and everything that's wrong will be righted. And every thought and word and deed put out in the light and is accounted for. Paul's looking into the future here and likening it to a great harvest day when the fruit of everyone's work will be inspected, examined, and its final value assessed by God. Not by you, not by me, not by anyone else, but by the holy, righteous, living God. It's unavoidable. Every human being that's ever walked the face of the earth is going to stand this test. This fruit inspection and those, he says, who reap or inherit eternal life, they are those who bore witness of this eternal life living within them while they were on the earth because they lived their lives sowing to the Spirit. That is, as I just mentioned, walking in the Spirit. We, they lived a life in step with the Spirit, bearing the fruits of the Spirit, loving their neighbor as themselves. They, they, they had a faith that worked itself out through love. Those who reap eternal life are those who lived their lives that way. 
with that eternal life of the Spirit demonstrated and manifested in their living. Those who reap corruption, they are those who did the opposite. They are those who walked according to the flesh, pursuing and fulfilling the desires of the flesh. They are those who, verse 3, thought themselves to be something when they were nothing. They are those, chapter 5, verse 15, who went about biting and devouring others. Those, verse 26, who were filled with envy and conceit. Keep in mind, these are all professors of faith Paul's addressing. He's not talking about some Hindus out in the backside of Nepal. He's not talking about Muslims. He's talking about people that profess to know Christ. They who claim to belong to Jesus. And however, Paul says right there in verse 24, chapter 5, that those who actually belong to Christ Jesus, they are those who have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. They're not those who keep such things on life support and justify them in their life. Justify living a life given to their flesh. Given over to the kinds of sins listed there in chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. Those sins listed there in in, in verse 19 and 20 are the very sowings that reap corruption in verse 8. Of which Paul says, I I warn you as I warned you before. Those who commit such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who do such things. Paul's not talking about two different types of Christians here. He's talking about two different fields being sown. One is a sowing that yields eternal life. The other is a kind of sowing that yields nothing but corruption, dearth, death. And listen carefully. This is not teaching what you do determines your destination. As I said, it is teaching what you do is a demonstration of what your faith is in, in whom you really trust. That's what this is. If it's truly, if your faith is truly anchored in Jesus Christ, your life will yield the kind of crops that chapter 5, verse 20, uh, 22 and 23 list. Which is a, which is a, which is what which that's which is life life is exuded in those passages love joy peace those 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 fruits on the wall there that's an expression of life all of those express life that's why that such a one who does it reaps eternal life because they flow from eternal life well, listen let me ask you a question when does when does a believer receive eternal life when they believe or when they die was it? When they believe, right? It's only when they die that, that eternal life is validated or re- fully realized. If your faith's not anchored in Jesus Christ, but rather you or your performance or, or you and your ideas that Jesus will cover my sins no matter how much I live, then eternal life will not be realized by you. What will be realized by you is this reaping of the flesh that reaps corruption. See, there's a big difference in Paul saying, you do this, if you do this, you will inherit eternal life. Versus life in the Spirit. This is what life in the Spirit produces. This is not you do this and you get eternal life. Paul is saying, this is what life in the Spirit does. This is what life in the Spirit looks like. And in the life of that Spirit, that's what's being sown. There's realities are being expressed. That is an expression of eternal life that that person possesses. And listen, I, I, I you know what? What makes makes messages like this difficult to preach is we have Christians, some Christians here that are not doing well. And a message like this can feel quite condemning. And you might feel your, your sowing of late has been just that. Corruption. And that's scary. Well, you know what? Praise God if He's convicted you that way. Listen, it's the Spirit of God that convicts. Flesh doesn't convict you. It's the Spirit who puts the fear of God. Listen, fear, fear is not a bad thing if it's a fear of God. In fact, 
Doesn't the Lord say it's the, it's the beginning of wisdom? And it's wisdom because it turns you from a wrong path onto the right one. The Lord uses a lot of things to help His people in a lot of ways to correct His people. And fear is one of those means. I'm convinced Paul, or God used this letter, this original letter that Paul wrote to bring conviction and correction to some very bad sowing that was taking place in the lives of His people in Galatia due to the horrible influence of the Judaizers. I trust Paul's words were instrumentally used of God in turning some from making shipwreck their faith. That's a great mercy. Praise God for that. I hope He does that today. But I'm also convinced there there are some who heard this letter and did not take heed to the warning set in it. And they went headlong into their sin and their deception. And right now, they rot in hell. A life that yields nothing but corruption, a life that's full of sin, is a life that is rooted in fleshly death. Yet a life that yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness, good works, uh, Christ-honoring conduct, that's a life that's rooted in the Spirit, which yields eternal life. We're not talking about perfection here. I mean, verse 1 is evidence of that, right? Yes, sadly, there are times Christians can and Christians do sow to their flesh. Sadly, that's true. We are those who do things and say things we regret. But we're talking about an overall life here. An overall life that is in the Spirit. A way of life. uh, The practice of your life. It looks quite different than what we see in verse 19 and 20 of chapter 5. This is a serious warning. This letter is a serious warning from Paul. He's essentially telling them, and us as well, if you continue down this path of sin, you've fallen from grace. says it. And that may throw your theology into a conundrum, but however you want to slice it and dice it, that's what this letter is setting forth. The danger of deception and by it, embracing another gospel. A damning one. Now, I got this illustration. It came to my mind yesterday. And so I. Sometimes God gives me illustrations when I'm on the elliptical. <laughs> so if it's a bad illustration, just blame it on the endorphins or something. But I was just. I was thinking about something that was common, just trying to illustrate this. I was thinking of this illustration. Now, if you work at HEB and you bag groceries, don't think, I'm not saying anything negative about you or it's sinful. Or, this is just for the sake of illustration. It's a, it's a bagging groceries illustration. And I, Listen, how many of us here who have purchasing power have been to HEB and you've bagged your groceries? I guess everybody in here, right? If, you, if you've ever gone to the store, you, you walk through the self-checkouts and it's an experience that we all have. But nobody calls you a bagger, Right? They don't. You don't look like a bagger unless you work there, right? And you spend your whole time at the inn there bagging people's groceries. Then you're called a bagger. Or maybe not. Maybe HEB has a more distinguished title like a product handling specialist or something. But <laughs> just for the, sake, for the sake of the illustration, the, the bagger in this illustration is equivalent to the sowing to the flesh. Someone who infrequently bags their own groceries, even when they do so, yes, they're sowing to the flesh, which is corrupt, it's worthless, it's a waste, has no value, eternal value. But that's not the norm for them. It doesn't represent the general practice of their life. That's not what they regularly do. That's, that is not the person in verse 8 who's going to reap corruption. However, when a person's sowing to the flesh is equivalent to the bagging frequency of the employed bagger, that is most certainly that is most certainly a person who will reap the corruption of verse eight, which represents damnation. 
Now, don't go picking this apart. You're trying to tell me Christians go days without sinning. I mean, you don't want to, it's limited in its illustration. But, but Paul is speaking to a pattern. He's speaking to a practice, a general overall picture of someone's life. And people, oh, people want to know just where the line is between practice and not practice, right? And you know what? The Bible doesn't give it to us. And you know why it doesn't give it to us? Because spirit people aren't looking to see how close they can live to the line and just kind of skate by right into eternity. That's not, that's not it. That's not how Christians want to live their lives. They're looking to walk in unison with the living God and be like Him and to have His influence as much as possible in their being and exercise a life that's actually pleasing to the one who went to that cross and bore their sin on His behalf, on their behalf. I mean, they're looking to become what they are, part of a royal, holy family. They're looking to live righteous lives, not lives that cater to their flesh. They're fighting this thing. This thing is a grievance to them. And Paul in this letter is saying, stop it. Stop sowing to the flesh. Oh, foolish, bewitched Galatians, you're spirit people. You're not flesh people. Stop allowing these false teachers to, 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 to lead you into flesh sowing. Life with Christ is a life lived out in the Spirit. Put to death the deeds of the flesh and be the kind of spirit people that God is calling you to be. Well, if you feel like your, your fruit bearing's waning some and you're in a season in your life where you feel a measure of barrenness within. Brethren, the answer is not trying to do more religious stuff. No, don't. The, the answer is just falling down on your face before Almighty God and saying, Lord, refresh, revive my soul. Lord, make, make Yourself real to me. Study Christ. Take in Christ. Lord, take Your poverty of spirit to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, please, You said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom. Lord, give it to me. Be real to me. Invade my soul. Let that kingdom fill me up. Lord, I want to know You. I want to hear You. I want to taste You. Lord, please, let it come. Let it fill my mind and soul. You said those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, they would be filled. They'd be satisfied. Lord, satisfy me with Your steadfast love for me. Lord, please quench my thirst. Don't let me grow complacent. Brethren, the answer is not complacency or blaming your sorry state on other things or other people. In this sense, you must bear your own load. You've got to get up under this thing and take it to the Lord. You gotta have a disposition like Jacob. What was Jacob? What was he doing? He's just, well, I'm just gonna arm wrestle the Lord, or maybe I'll, you know. He's wrestling the, the living God. He want, he, Lord, I'm not letting you go till you bless me. I want the blessing, and I'm not letting go until that happens. It was a determination, a fight, a wrestling with God. The violent take this thing by force. That, that, that's required sometimes in our life. Yes. The sun is hot, not just physically, spiritually. And the heat of trial bears down upon you. This earth is dry and you feel weary, but brethren, it's time to sow. And it's time to sow in the Spirit. It's not time for resting. It's not time for quitting. The night is coming where man will work no more, but it's not right now. Now it's daylight. Now it's time to sow. So we need to get sowing. And sowing to the Spirit. Put the spade to the ground and bust in through all those rocks of life. Brethren, we... We weren't promised an easy road. In fact, what does Jesus say? The gate is narrow and the way is hard. I don't know about you, but walking with the Lord 30 some plus years, I haven't found it getting easier. It's a hard way. But you know what? It's a glorious way because it leads to eternal life. It does. And it's so, so much worth it. It's like was it Jeff was saying in the first hour, if we saw Stephen, if Steve, and Stephen saw Jesus' face right then at that moment, this is oh so worth it. But brethren, you're only going to make it by faith. In fact, the difficulty 
God gives us is intended to prove the genuineness of your faith. It's those difficult times in that, that, that really produce some of the most significant sowing in our life. Glorious seeds are planted when God brings rains down trial and difficulty and opposition. Those heavy waves hit us and the deep waters, those deep waters just seem to be drowning us. But you know what's happening in the midst of that? Jesus is being formed more deeply in you. He is. You don't want to take that away. The pressures of life can and do become a means of of illuminating God's grace in your life, shining forth Christ's glory. And our sowings to the Spirit in such times will yield abundant, glorious, eternal fruit. We were uh, were watching a deep sea uh, documentary the other night. And this big camera rig it's plunging down into the depths of the of the ocean and i can't remember what level it was it's like it was like the abyss level like 15 20,000 feet deep and it, with the pressures the weight of the water the pressure created that that weight just an incredible amount of pressure just immense thousands of pounds per square inch and you wouldn't think anything could live under that kind of pressure in those pitch black waters no there's no sunlight making it that in that depth and there comes this luminescent jelly thing, just like with these disco lights shining and blinking. And so like, what is this? How is this even possible? How does something jelly-like sustain all these thousands of pounds of pressure on it? And it's light, we're lighting up? How does something like that hold up under all that pressure? And, and then faith says, I want to be like one of those. (laughs) And I thought, yes, exactly. I do. Brethren, what 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 a spiritual illustration God has given to us at the bottom of the sea of all places. Uh, We're, and that's kept, that's, this is fairly recent. This is something, a spiritual reality that God's given us in creation that He's kind of just kept secret for thousands of years. And now He lets us see it. The longest time, nobody thought there would be or could be life that deep, that far down, and all that darkness, and all that pressure. And lo and behold, God has on display a light show under immense pressure. So so the next time you feel the pressures of life, and your circumstances feel like God has placed you in a vice and is just squeezing you, remember these luminescent creatures that are glorifying Him, just shining forth these bright and wonderful and beautiful lights, and when everything around them suggests there can't be life. And the pressure's high and the surroundings are dark. What a spiritual parallel for us. God loves to do through His people what seems impossible and unlikely to most. Brother, that's a platform for His power and His glory to shine forth. And eternity will reveal what glorious reapings will be harvested from, from His people in times such as that. But it's not just trials and impossibilities that yield eternal fruit. The Lord's taking note of every little thing you do and every little thing you say and purpose and pursue for His glory. Even the things that no one here knows else knows about, that you do in secret, even the tiniest thing of a cup of cold water. I mean, the father, your father knows the great heavenly inspector, the fruit inspector. He sees it. It's not going to get past him. He's not going to overlook it. He's not going to overlook anything we sow. It all matters, and it's all heaping up to this this eternal weight of glory that's awaiting you and I. So, as I wrap up, I ask, what are you sowing? What drives your life in your living? I mean, what do you, be honest. I mean, what are you, what are you giving your time and attention to? What do, you, what do you think about? What do you talk about? What do you, what do you desire? What do you plan? What do you, 
What are you purposing? Maybe God's got a people out there still that, he's, that need to be brought into His kingdom. They'll be part of the family, this royal, holy family. And in what way are you seeking to aid the endeavor to rescue them and bring them in and share this wonderful gospel message of salvation to them? The church is the means of bringing such in. This imagery is pointing to a great, that great day when what's really true about you will be revealed. When similar to a science project, I think most of us are familiar with a science project, you're doing a last minute, and, but similar to a science project, you're gonna, the project of your life is going to be revealed, set on display, and judged accordingly. However, there won't be any parental help then. There won't be any biased judges. There'll be one holy, righteous judge. And that scene will be absolutely, incredibly terrifying for some. But brethren, it'll be absolutely, incredibly joyous to others. The contrast, I can't even paint the contrast of those two things. Like never before, like nothing else, those two realities will exist. And there you will stand, empty professor. And Christ, the living Christ, will examine your field. And you'll quickly point Him to the banner on the edge of that field. Look, Lord, see? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He's going to look past that banner and He's going to see another sign that says that's labeled fruitless. Taking up countless dusty, barren rows of dirt. Representing all your selfish pursuits and wasted opportunities to love your neighbor as yourself. Next to it, a sign called Liberties with rows of empty beer cans and whiskey bottles there lying in the dirt. Next to a bunch of crooked sticks all representing the times you use the phrase nobody's perfect to justify sin in your life. Adjacent to that's a pile of flesh-rotting tongues representing all your gossip and the ways you spoke evil of brethren and other people. And then he finds row after row of dead men's bones representing all your sexual addictions and perversions and hidden lusts. And there's such a huge section in your field consisting of all your stuff that you've given and accumulated and given yourself to time and time again that absorbed your life. There it is. It's all sitting covered in dust, howling, clanking in the howling wind, covered in cobwebs and rust. Corruption. Void of any lasting, meaningful fruit. There they are. All your gadgets and devices and and trophies and, and degrees. All the empty things that swallowed up your time that were completely Christless. Row after row taking up acres of your field and Jesus will say to you, corruption you have sown. Corruption you are now reaping. But then brother, sister, (laughs) He's going to come to your field. And with a gleam in His eye, He's going to look out You're going to say, Lord, what is it? And he smiles and says, oh, don't you see all those beautiful flowers? Countless beautiful flowers. They represent every brother or sister you visited or made food for when they were sick or they were in need. Every stranger that you welcomed. Every encouraging word that you gave to one that was downcast. Every saint that you brought gently brought back and restored. Where, Lord? (laughs) What's right next to those bountiful fruit trees there? Just hanging with succulent fruit. Each one representing every time you spoke of me or handed out a track. And look at those heavenly lilies. Each one representing times you helped clothe the naked or each time you loved your enemy. Lord, what's the giant golden clock? 
It holds all the hours you spent on your knees talking to me and interceding for others. Right next to the palm trees of your righteousness that exceeded all the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Lord, what's the hammock? Well, that's your eternal rest. Well well deserved my good and faithful labors. But wait, look. Look at that heap of treasure. It's yours. It's all the interest on those deposits you made into my kingdom that you sowed in faith. There lies the bounty for the X amount of paychecks where you stepped out in faith and you didn't know how you were going to make ends meet and or even worked an ex- overtime and extra j- took an extra job so you could support some need in the mission field. When build back better meant higher inflation and increased expenses and you determined to up your giving to me anyway, you trusted me to meet and supply your, your needs according to my riches and glory. It, rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward. You sowed in the Spirit. Now reap everlasting life. You know, it's interesting. I was working on this and I got this in the mail. It's kind of a popular illustration. It uh, shows, I think it's supposed to be America. They're going down into the pit of hell. The only means of glory is this cross. And this could be the corruption. This could be the, the field of corruption and the field that yields eternal life. It's a reality. It, God, the Scripture gives us images to help impress the reality. Everything we do here is going to come into judgment. It really matters. It really matters the basis on which and why we do what we do. We don't just want to slough it off or just oh, l- 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 hear it and just walk out the door and just forgotten, evaporated. Yes, I, I, it's, it's probably not going to look like this. But it, it expresses reality. We're all going to face this someday. Don't, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you're sowing here on earth, it has eternal consequences. Father, I pray, please bless Your Word. Thank You. Thank You for the Spirit. Thank You, Lord, that You've enabled us and burdened us and gifted us and graced us to sow. Lord, in so many ways, I think we will be saying, what, where, how is this, Lord? We feel our own imperfections. We feel our own inadequacy. We feel our own failures. Lord, we're thankful that You redeem it and You use it for Your glory. We thank You we're part of the kingdom. Lord, help us. Help us to not sow to our flesh. Help us, Lord, to pour ourselves out more for You. Help our lives yield abundant fruit to Your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.